This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope everyone is enjoying the holidays. It's good for the soul to stop and rest and enjoy precious time with family and friends. Well, here we are with our final episode of the year. It's hard to believe another year has gone by. Time flies when you're out in the garden, right? Why does it always seem that spring and summer just zip by, yet fall and winter seem to take forever to get through? Luckily, I was given some wonderful books about birds and native gardening for Christmas, so I will be kept busy doing a lot of reading. It's hard to believe, but we are getting ready to start Season 3 of Bird Hugger. We will be bringing you more information on the latest issues impacting birds and their survival, and how you can help. We will also be offering more natural history on individual bird species. We will be interviewing the people playing a key role in protecting birds and the environment. This includes scientists, naturalists, and wildlife rehabilitators. I hope you will visit our new newsletter and website. Go to birdhuggerpodcast.com to keep up with the latest information regarding birds and native plant and tree restoration in your yard. I would like to say thank you so much for being a part of the Bird Hugger Podcast. Listenership has tripled over the last year, and I couldn't be more grateful for your continued support and encouragement. Here's to a new year, filled with hope and promise. And now for some interesting news. The governor of Maine recently signed into law one of the strongest restrictions on the use of neonicotinoids in the nation, long identified by scientists as extremely toxic to bees, other pollinating insects, along with butterflies and birds. The use of neonicotinoids in outdoor residential landscapes, which includes lawns and ornamental vegetation, is now prohibited. It's important to know the statute is not an outright ban, since a loophole will allow the use of neonicotinoids on conventional nursery stock and may be applied as seed coating by some commercial nurseries. Studies show the use of neonicotinoids, also known as neonics, impair the brain function of pollinators like bumblebees, disrupting their ability to find their way back to their nests and produce new queens. Scientists have also found neonicotinoids can percolate through groundwater, contaminating local watersheds. The new law is a solid step forward in reining in the use of harmful compounds in the state of Maine, according to the Environmental Action Group Beyond Pesticides. The Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection is now enforcing a new regulation that bans the release of commercially raised butterflies at any life stage. According to Jeffrey Glassberg, president of the North American Butterfly Association, 
commercially raised butterflies released at public events like weddings, gender reveal parties, funerals, and state fairs pose a disease threat to native butterflies. In addition, captive-raised butterflies can interfere with and disrupt the breeding and migration of native butterflies, according to butterfly experts. Connecticut officials said concern over disease and parasite transmission to the state's native population of butterflies was a pivotal turning point in passing the new legislation. The one exception to the new legislation is for the captive rearing of butterflies for conservation purposes conducted by educational institutions. The sale of commercially raised butterflies has become a lucrative business, with a single live butterfly fetching up to $10 a piece. This, in turn, has unfortunately created a noticeable spike in instances of poaching, particularly at the overwintering sites of the monarch butterfly in Mexico and California. Of greatest concern right now by butterfly researchers are the monarch, the painted lady, the American lady, red admiral, giant swallowtail, gulf fritillaries, the zebra, and the mourning cloak. Glassburg and the North American Butterfly Association are strongly urging the rest of New England states to follow Connecticut and ban the sale of commercially raised butterflies. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now let's go to the email mailbag. We have an email from Grace in Worcester, Massachusetts. She writes, Dear Bird Hugger, I just realized this past summer that I have those awful Asian jumping worms in my garden. I joined a Facebook group to learn more about what to do, but I'm hearing so many different theories that now I am totally confused. I know these worms are a serious problem. Can you help me out? Grace, thank you so much for contacting Bird Hugger. Asian jumping worms, also referred to as crazy worms, are indeed a very serious problem. Asian jumping worms, native to Eastern Asia, have been encroaching on American soil since the late 1800s. And scientists say the country is now experiencing widespread damage that may imperil entire forests. Adult Asian jumping worms are typically found in the garden from July until October. The cocoons they lay containing eggs easily survive the winter. Each adult usually lays 20 cocoons per season and may even engage in a second egg-laying episode if temperatures stay warm enough. Asian jumping worms greedily consume the essential nutrients and minerals in the soil, as well as roots, damaging and killing plant and wildlife habitat. These worms also eat wood mulch and are drawn to garden areas that contain it. In the last 10 years, these worms have multiplied to enormous proportions, making their way across northern states like Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, and Minnesota. They are now pushing eastward and northward into New England and have already been reported in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. Officials also believe they may be spreading due to bags of contaminated topsoil and compost, and possibly commercially bagged mulch as well. Ready for some more bad news? As they eat the soil, they accumulate toxic levels of metals naturally found in the ground. 
This makes them unpalatable and poisonous to wild birds, who normally consume untold numbers of regular earthworms. Officials from various New England states are recommending the following. Do not use commercial mulch in your garden, as it can attract the worms from adjacent yards. And yes, these worms are famous for crossing the street to get to your garden. Don't bring other people's leaves onto your property. Be very careful about any fill you allow onto your property for construction purposes. Avoid buying bags of topsoil and compost. Make your own soil by composting at home. Be very wary at plant sales and nurseries when purchasing plants. The cocoons are very small and difficult to detect. Use a boot brush to clean the bottoms of your shoes after working in the garden so cocoons are not accidentally carried into neighboring areas, especially forests. According to researchers, there is some evidence to show that cooking an infestation using plastic mulch in the hot sun, which must attain 105 degrees for three days, may be effective in killing both the worms and the cocoons. But the jury on this potential solution is still out. Grace, I hope this information helps you a little. I wish I could give you more concrete information on how to get rid of these worms. We are all waiting right now for direction from state officials about the best way to protect our native gardens and forests. And I will continue reporting on this issue as the year progresses. And now let's talk about some berry-producing plants that benefit the birds and other wildlife in winter. Birds burn up a lot of energy to stay warm during cold winters, and they must have ready access to food in order to maintain adequate body fat. There are several low-growing native shrubs and ground covers that provide vital nutrition to birds and can help them survive until spring arrives. If you have woodlands in your yard or the edge of a wooded area, you may already be seeing some of these plants on your property. Most of the plants mentioned today prefer moist areas with varying degrees of shade. Some of the ground covers are creepers, meaning they grow slowly, but if left undisturbed long enough can cover a wide area. The first plant is bunchberry, which has become an important staple for wildlife. Growing up to six inches tall, it produces small white flowers in late spring that feed bumblebees, solitary bees, and surfid flies. This plant prefers cool, moist soils and grows in bogs as well as coniferous and mixed forests. This plant will often form dense carpet-like mats under trees. The bright red fruits reach maturity in late summer. Birds that flock to this plant include vireos and warblers. The berries are also eaten by fox, marten, and snowshoe hares. The next plant is partridge berry. The tiny partridge berry is actually a small trailing vine that hugs the ground, growing to two inches tall and spreading roughly 15 inches wide. This plant loves deep shade and prefers coniferous and deciduous forests. The white blooms open in early summer and then bright red berries appear, which draw multiple birds, including the hermit thrush, robins, veeries, turkeys, ruffed grouse, bob white, and of course, partridges. And then there is bearberry, or kinnick-kinnick, which is a small shrub with thick leathery leaves and usually grows 6 to 12 inches tall. It does quite well in rocky or sandy areas and is frequently seen on Cape Cod and the New Jersey shoreline. 
you will see small pink and white bell-shaped flowers in the springtime. And then red berries that are gobbled up by birds, along with other wildlife, including bears, hence its name. It has become an important winter food for many species and is a big favorite with grosbeaks. In addition, it serves as a host plant for 14 different types of Lepidoptera, including the brown elfin. Its flower is also beneficial to a number of small native bees. This plant is small but tough and can survive the winter under snowpack. And finally, there is common winterberry. Winterberry is a member of the holly family and prefers extremely moist areas near vernal pools and wetlands. More of a shrub than a ground cover, winterberry is loved by over 50 species of birds, especially woodpeckers, cedar waxwings, eastern bluebirds, great catbirds, and the wood thrush. Planting these natives in woodsy shaded areas will certainly boost the capacity of your yard to feed birds, especially during those difficult winters. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.